Welcome to the Smart Talk series, the Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in September of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Mark Blythe. Dr. Blythe earned his bachelor's in political science from the University of Strathclyde and went on to earn his master's and PhD in political science from Columbia University. He has taught at multiple prestigious universities across America, including Johns Hopkins University and Brown. He is an Eastman professor at Brown's Institute for International Studies and is a William R. Rhodes Scholar as well. He is the author of several books, including Angrynomics, Great Transformations, and Austerity. His most recent focus has been on austerity, its consequences, benefits, and fallacies. Together, the Henry George School joined Dr. Blythe to discuss the economic impact of austerity measures, its policy origins throughout history, and alternatives to debt reduction. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, good morning, uh, Mark. Uh, thanks for joining us at the Henry George School. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. You're kind of a successor, su- successor to Pogliani, and uh, he had a lot to say about embedding uh, rules, regulations into society as opposed to, let's say, a neoliberal disembedding uh, structure and uh, uh, protections for society. And uh, one of the things in your book, uh, transformations, you've covered quite neatly the debates in America during the 1930s where austerity, uh, uh, kind of pre-Keynesian ideas were cooking and, and working together and, and the austerity issue was, was discussed implicitly and then finally knocked out uh, in, a, in a kind of a Keynesian uh, reformation of, of, of social structure. So I'd like you to Talk about that because that's a that's a that's a history that I don't think Americans really get. All right, so let's get started on stuff that I wrote a long time ago that I haven't reread that you're just jumping on me now with. Awesome, thanks very much. Okay, um, how am I going to tell this story? All right, so most of the people listening to this will probably know about the famous speech by Hoover where he basically says we need to tighten our belts and they end up taking so many billions out of the budget and it worsens the contraction and so on. And then you got his Secretary of State, Mellon, as in the banking scion, saying liquidate the farms and liquidate business and the whole rottenness will be purged and it will come out of the system. Well, if you follow Mellon's quote forward, there's a nice line that he says that doesn't get quoted much, where he says, and more competent people will come along and pick up what's left and start again. And the great insight that was developed through the sort of the 1920s and into the Great Depression was, and this to me is the fundamental insight of macroeconomics, and it's not a Keynesian point. It's, you know, to put it into this Keynesian versus neoliberal thing, I tend to think about it as whether you think the economy is scalable or not. And basically, is it true for a family, what's true for a household, is true for the state? And that would be very much the kind of orthodox, liberal and neoliberal way of thinking. Or you say that it's non-scalable. What's true about the local isn't true about the global. They have different dynamics and different characteristics. And crucially, what can be individually rational? 
for one business to basically do a fire sale on prices is collectively disastrous if they all do it. And the only way you can stop that is if you put a floor on prices. So if you think about the Agricultural Adjustment Act, then what was this? It was essentially a sort of a cartel structure on pricing to stop farmers engaging in what businessmen used to call ruinous competition. Because they understood that if everyone was cutting prices, the only thing that would happen is everybody was putting everything on sale. The market would clear, but you couldn't pay wages. And if you couldn't pay wages, then consumption would fall, and then you get into a vicious cycle. Okay, the, the point, of course, is that uh, pure competition with the farmers is really the neoliberal model writ large. Why, uh, why complain back then that it's ruinous and yet advocate it in a big sense uh, today? And we'll go, we'll, I'm jumping forward. But that's essentially a neoliberal, that the marketplace will solve the problem. So you just purge the farmers and they'll, they'll consolidate and get bigger and bigger and somehow the system will rectify itself. Why didn't the U.S. make that, that judgment and act that way back then? Well, they did. They tried it all the way through the 20s and into the early 30s. I mean, remember that in 1932, Roosevelt was actually elected to balance the budget and enact cuts. And it was circumstances that formed, forced his hand. So first you had the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was modeled off of Italian corporatism in part, which was an attempt to basically set prices and quantities throughout the whole economy. There was a moment in 2008, let's jump forward, when people said neoliberalism has failed, the banks have failed, it's all failed, right? And what did every government do? They put the whole system back together again with bigger airbags. Now, why did they do that? They did it for two reasons. Number one, they could. And why could they do it? Because they built these things called welfare states. And even though we've kicked the hell out of them since the time of Reagan and Thatcher and continue to do so, they're still massively, massively more important and bigger than they were in the 20s and 30s when they didn't exist. So you can basically take the lash to people if they actually still have somewhere to sit down after the beating. Now, the second reason you can do this is because if you think about the income skew that's developed over the past 30 years, very different again. The 20s was a period of high inequality, but with no welfare states. So what did that breed? Fascism, communism, reactions against the market. The welfare state was in many ways an attempt to make sure that that type of vicious reaction from the left and the right didn't happen again. And in that way, it was remarkably successful. So what are you able to do this time? Well, you think about bailing out the banks globally. Just do the U.S., what are the bank's liabilities? Your assets. If you've got a mortgage, you've got a pension, you've got an insurance policy, that's the bank's liabilities. And they all sum to zero. So when you've got a highly skewed income distribution and the top 20% of people effectively control or own about 80% of the assets, when the banks get bailed, you don't bail out the bankers. That's a silly way of looking at it. You're bailing out the top 20% of the income distribution. Okay, let me stop you right there. Of course, uh, this begs the question, why did we financialize? We had the welfare state. We came out of the Depression. I think, uh, you know, the model might have been looking at uh, the fact that Nazi Germany could pull out of a recession by massive government spending. Uh, and then the war, of course, pulled the U.S. out. It became clear that massive spending had to overcome the nature of capitalism as it existed at that time. But now we had a balanced capitalist system, let's say, from 45 to 75, at least in the United States. And, uh, you know, we had a, a strong expansion uh, around the world. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was perhaps a realization crisis, or profits were harder to get, unions were taking more money. And, uh, and all of a sudden, 
the United States found as a reserve currency, they could, they could finesse the social pressures of unionization, who got what in the U.S., by starting to uh, print extra money, uh, becoming a financial center, drawing money in with high interest rates, and pretty soon finance became a very lucrative way to finesse the problem and make lots of money. It, it, it's as if the United States yeah, can't go just, back. You just answered your own question. I mean, that's it. I mean, I'd put a slightly different cast on it, though. Um, there's, a, there's an issue that, you know, people tend to think about this and imagine it's some kind of giant conspiracy. As if people who weren't even in college yet in the 1970s sat around a big table and said, let's financialize, right? Not quite. So here, here's a simple way of thinking about this. I'll ask, I'll ask you a question, see if you know this. How many people worked for J.P. Morgan in 1977? In 1977, as compared today, probably one twentieth of the of the people worked for J.P. Morgan then that work today. I would say that's probably not even enough to go there. Probably one hundred and twentieth. There was two hundred and twenty people, top to bottom, from the mailroom to the CEO, when it was a, a partnership back then. And by two thousand and seven, it was sixty-seven thousand five hundred working worldwide in one hundred and forty countries. Now, how did that happen? Well, part of it was, yeah, people discovered it was remarkably profitable to asset strip and basically financialize and you get more money from the parts than you do from the whole. So the people that came of age in the 1940s and basically started the Keynesian revolution against the people who were the students, the, people, the students of Piju, they were 70 by the time that you get to the crisis in the 1970s. And it's a crisis of inflation and stagflation. These new models are basically picked up by business interests as a way of saying, hey, look, I told you it's unsustainable. Corporate profits are on the floor. Labor powers and labor share of national incomes never been higher. It's harder and harder to manage and set a buck. And of course, business went to war to regain control. The financialization side of this happens by accident. But only two countries essentially really did that. That's the United States and, and Great Britain. I mean, they became the centers. Everybody else, Germany and Japan didn't really financialize. They basically kept a manufacturing base. It's uh, the United States and its co-ally, uh, Britain, are the ones that collected the financialization gains and basically probably have an irreversible situation going that they can't revert back to a balanced economy. Exactly. So what exactly is Britain going to do? So it, everything's based on London. It's based upon cleaning money for various dubious purposes through the property market. That's incredibly important. Um, the banks are the major earners. They produce a hell of a lot of taxation. The city of London produces about 22% of total British tax receipts. Um, so let's kill it and let's make windmills. No, I'm sorry, the Danes have got that. All right, let's do solar, Chinese. Okay, let's do cars. We do, but for people who already own them elsewhere. So, you know, once you've done this, it's very hard to come back along the path and do something else. So everybody talks a good game of reform, but they end up putting the whole thing back together again with bigger airbags. So what are they supposed to do? They, most of those people can't get into finance. The finance is attracting the best and brightest and the smartest. And I agree that it's, it's serendipity that it, it kind of evolved that way. But finance, based on loans on nature, real property, we Georges would say, is a... Is a a hegemonic position. You can't undo that. People can't come back from that as Greece is, is seeing right now. What's the, what's the outlook yeah. for ordinary people in a situation like that, in your opinion? Well, it depends on how you define ordinary. So I look at it this way. Um, private college tuition in the United States is around $50,000 a year now. 
So you're basically at like one year of the median wage for a family of four to send someone to college, which is kind of insane. And yet they can still do it because despite the fact that there's an incredible income skew, the top 1% is still 3 million people who have millions, if not billions of dollars in assets. So it's still fine at the top. But until the people that matter are hit, it's just going to continue and everyone else is going to be told to adjust. Well, the adjustment is, uh, is massive. Let's assume that uh, in the United States and Britain, maybe 10% of the population can qualify for high ground positions. Now, you can't marginalize essentially 90% of the people forever. I mean, I've looked back in history and I, I would say that once a relatively small percentage of people get at least 30% of the wealth, trouble starts. But at the same time then, why is there no collective identity amongst the 70%? Because they're cut by generation, they're cut by class, they're cut by ethnicity, they're cut by every ideational and identity variable you can possibly think of. They're all schismed. And at the end of the day, if you can just encourage people to take on more debt, to pretend that everything's okay, and then, as in the case of Greece, you can even get to the absurd point where you say that the country's in trouble because it has more debt, so you give it more debt and yet another bailout to keep it going. Now, this is the same as the student loan bubble. This is the same as keeping too big to fail banking institutions. Now, at the end of the day, does this all go bang in some cataclysmic moment of wrongness? Probably not. It will be more fragile. It will definitely be more sort of volatile. But until you basically hit the assets and incomes of the next generation of the upper middle classes in core countries, nothing changes. Well, it's, uh, uh, let, me just, uh, let me just address that problem. In effect, we'll create another realization crisis before that happens. I mean, essentially, you can issue all the debt, debt you want. Uh, you can paper it over. You can... Uh, you can uh, create austerity to try to force payment of that debt, but more and more companies are going to find it's more and more difficult to sell products to people who don't have money. And you've got massive investment on major companies around the world who uh, ultimately have to sell things to stay alive. This is, some, this is something that, that uh, is going to create constricted purchasing power. Everybody feels that. These governments feel that. Greece is only the the whip end of this snake that's getting it right in the neck. But this is a relentless, crushing uh, blow that you can say, sure, there's no this fragmentation. People aren't coalescing into any particular movement. And in a way, you've got neoliberalism is perfect to atomize everybody. But pain is pain. Economic pain is economic pain. And soon, more and more people will feel it. They are feeling it now. They are watching a demonstration in Greece of a horror inflicting on a nation. Yeah, but by the same token, you've got hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, turning up for a Trump rally. And you've got people whose names are Polish and Latin American coming up to say, yeah, it's all the fault of the immigrants and we shouldn't have immigration. The Republicans are going to poll 30% of the country, minimum. And they're the guys who are saying it's not austerity, it's the fact that our government's too big and it spends too much. And you can point out that that's simply not true, and here's the numbers, but it doesn't matter because people don't care about numbers or facts. They care about the way that things make them feel. This is unsustainable. This is unsustainable. I don't care if the people are stupid, confused, or have no idea what's going on. Eventually, you live your life and you find that you have no money, you have no options, you have an education that you can't get a job. Eventually, frustration 
sets in. And frustration is something you can't manage. Okay, but where does it go? I mean, at this point in time, the Europeans had a chance to talk to Syriza. Syriza is about as radical left as the Swedish Social Democrats in 1982. Now go back to the Germans. The Germans aren't hurting. The Germans are screwing their own workers. They haven't had a real wage increase in 10 years. But that's because they know globalization starts 60 kilometers outside of Berlin because they can move their jobs to Eastern Europe. And that's why the Eastern Europe's are backing up the Germans, because so long as the Germans are selling BMWs to the Americans and the Chinese, they can bankroll the Eastern Europeans' recovery and austerity programs. So it's working for them. They don't have a long-term plan, because what's the point in having one? They don't know what's going to happen five years from now. They're riding high on the hog. And what you're going to have is a disintegration of center-left parties throughout Europe and a rise of the right, because you refuse to talk to the left. Okay, well, let's, let, let me jump on to that point. Uh... I'm a German elite. I'm an American elite. Uh, I understand what you've said. And I see that I'm backed into a corner that I can't do much about it. I'm not going to give any ground because I can't unravel my own thing. It's, too, it's, it's path dependent now. It's, uh, it's gone in a direction that's unravelable. Okay? So, so I know that it's going to blow up. But I'm saying, hey, I have all the assets, even in any kind of revolutionary or, ch or change, I'll probably land on my feet. It's a, it's, a, it's a world that's going to be constrained by resource lack anyway. We know that the technology and all of that is going to impact the planet. So the population of the world at, at an ever higher technical standard of living is going to probably have to be reduced. And we good people, smart people, rich people, will probably be the survivors. We'll have the assets and everybody else is going to be breeding out, bred out, dying out, not reproducing, and we can get a stable world by, in effect, dropping the population uh, to a significant extent. Yeah, but, I mean, that's, that's a cataclysmic and be a 50-year play. I mean, there's a simpler way of doing this. It's electoral politics. This is very simple. Nobody gets voted for talking about that. Nobody cares. At the end, of the day, everybody cares in the abstract about climate change. It's the same way they care about polar bears. If you had a polar bear living next door, you'd be calling animal welfare to get it removed. I mean, you know, the, the, what you're saying, there, I actually know hedge fund managers personally who think exactly the way you do, right? And they have panic rooms in their houses. They have bunkers in North Dakota. And I always love to say to them, it's like, all right, suppose the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket and your private jet takes you to the regional airport in North Dakota and then your convoy of gold, because remember, it's really heavy, right? So you have to take it off your private jet and then move it all the way to your bunker. So you sit in your bunker and after six months or six years, you come out of your bunker and you basically claim on everybody who's around and you machine gun everyone and you fight your way to the port and you put all your gold on the boat and you go all the way to China, let's say the left. What happens when you get to China? They're going to steal your gold or they're going to make you turn it into money. I mean, this is just utterly pointless. Thinking this way goes nowhere. Technology is on rushing. Income distribution is uh, getting worse and worse because monopoly power gets greater and greater. The population gets more sophisticated in terms of knowing if they have something or not having something, whether they can figure out why uh, they've been outmaneuvered or they're in a particular position that they have. All of this is cataclysmic in terms of coming together. No one can predict what will happen. I mean, it's almost like a replay of America in the, in the 30s. It's not so clear we don't have the communist enemy and so forth. But it's a similar kind of a thing on a world scale now. And yes, you can do a Hoover austerity in, in Europe, 
and to a certain extent in the United States, but it will not stand because it did not stand then. Yeah, but it, I think it's completely different. I mean, this projecting back to the 1930s, I mean, it's, it's useful if you want to look at the moments of change and how they're similar and how they're different. But you can't repeat that history because the path has been walked. There are no social movements. There are no Twitter followers, right? The world has completely changed in this regard. The Greeks themselves, think about it this way. Even after everything has happened, 60% of them, if not 70% of them, want to stay in the euro, and then they vote 61% against austerity. Well, that's a bit like me saying, you know, I'm voting against oxygen, but I'm a big fan of breathing, right? I mean, there's absolutely no coherence in any of this. And, like, are, things are sustainable until they're not. I mean, you know, come on, after 2008, oh, the banks are done, and banksters are this, and we'll see reform, and now we're going to have Glass-Steagall back bollocks. We didn't get any of it. And the reason you didn't get any of it is because the vast majority of people, including poor people, I mean, think about it, the definition of poverty in the United States is 22,600 or 23,300 for a family of four. It's low. Now, you put that on a global scale where you've got 2 billion people earning less than $3 a day, and that's living high in the goddamn hog. All right, Mark, uh, Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot then. I mean, I'm satisfied. Anyone read your works, you've mastered what's happened as well as anybody. You had ultimate power. What would you do? You I'd were give the... it to someone else. <laughs> no, no, you're not. I would, no, no, because first of all, okay, let's take that seriously. Oh, no, why, right? why don't we move to Greece? Let's take a small example, which is an example for the world. Everybody's focused on Greece. Everyone can see the future here in Greece. I mean, Greece is the perfect metaphor for the world. It's all playing out. You have dramatic personalities. You have nations, the nation voting for freedom and then voting for unfreedom or right behind it. You have all of the issues in the world playing out in, in, in Greece. Uh, you were Varoufakis, for example, the finance minister. Let's assume you had complete power. What would you have done and why? Well, for, just for the Greek case, I would have gotten out. I just can't believe that these guys didn't actually have a plan B. I mean, if their real plan was to go up to countries that have already lent you, or in other words, lent their banks lots of money to bail themselves out, and basically have kept their foot on your neck to stop a bank run around the bond market for a couple of years, and then have done excessive austerity to the point that they've shrunk your economy by 30%. If you honestly think just walking up to them and going, oh, come on, it isn't working. How about we have a debt reduction is going to get you anywhere? I'm just truly surprised. I was convinced all the time that they had a plan B. They would have talked to the Russians or they would have talked to the Swiss. They would have had a currency printed on the fly. Turns out they haven't done any of that. So, I mean, at this point in time, I think they're criminally irresponsible. I have no idea what the hell they were doing. I was writing stuff back in February about this is how you would get out. You would load up on ELA, you would make a lot of promises, you put up capital controls, you steal the ELA, you use a new currency as a unit of account, you use the euro as a unit of exchange, right? This isn't rocket science, you could do this. They didn't even think of this. All right, let me just see the, you, will you, we'll stay with the, with the Greek uh, uh, case. First of all, the issue that the Greeks themselves were an irresponsible people and they brought this on themselves. Will you explain to everybody why that's not quite the fact? Do we even have to go through this? Um, all right, here's the deal. It's really simple. Uh, go to stats.oecd.org and just generate a chart of debt 
you'll find that most of the Greek debt increases from 40% of GDP to 100% by 1995, before they're in the euro. From 95 through 2005, it's basically flat. There is no orgy of spending. Um, which Greek myth do you want to demolish? Uh, the Germans work hard and the Greeks don't. Germans work 1,360 hours because they'll work in a capital-intensive economy. And the Greeks are 80% services and they all work two jobs and work 2,000 hours a year. Well, you've demonstrated in, uh, in your work, uh, and I won't cite all the examples, that austerity for the past 200 years hasn't worked. As a, as, as, as a process. I mean, that's, you yourself have yeah, documented on, that. Hold on, hold on. Hasn't worked for whom? Oh, okay. It hasn't worked for the general population. It works for the elites quite well. Yes, it works if I, for example, took a look at the United States as a, as a two countries, a country that consists of one country, A, Boston, New York, uh, Washington, finance, defense, technology with a few outliers. And I call this America one, and then all else is America two. Yes, this works for America one, because they've got America twos all over the world to to draw from. Then why then why is it that uh, um, Walker managed to face down the unions with massive public support in America too? Well, uh, I guess I could ha answer that uh, uh, in, a, in in a way by referring you back to the book. What's the matter with Kansas? So everybody's stupid. Maybe they just have different interests from us. Maybe they look at the world in a different way. If we continue to separate able and intelligent people worldwide from the rest of the population, they will become a, a new race of people, irrespective of color, irrespective of backgrounds. You have a common denominator of ability. And if, peop if people of, of ability cling together, work together, develop their own interests together, they in effect separate themselves from everybody else in the world. This is an inexorable process. You may use a Darwinian view of that in the short term, but underlying it all is a spontaneous uh, understanding of people like yourself that you're exceptional. So put that one to one side, where then does the change come from? All right, let me just, let me just uh, give you the it's not going to come from an overt, conscious reaction from people who've been excluded. What it'll be is the feeling of excruciating pain and abuse and structures and, 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 uh, and institutions that marginalize them, make them feel bad about themselves, uh, let them know that they're not part of anything. I get all that, right? So now we know all this, what do we do with this information? There is no way we can rationally predict how this disintegration will play out. It will be a relative disintegration, and it will, it, you, can, you, can, you can see the outlines of it coming. And the planet itself, double the, technology, double the output, the GNP of this planet, and double the population, and you basically destroyed the planet as we know it. So we're not too far away from that, even though people have been saying for thousands of years the world is coming to an end. This is not quite true. The world. Oh, no, 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 no. For the past 20 minutes, we've been going round and round this thing, and all you've been saying to me is, at some point, in the long run, we're all going to die. And before that, people are going to rise up somehow, but I don't know how. I, I don't see where this is going. Well, okay. I, uh, I'm just saying to you that, the, that uh, of course, I asked you to opine on Greece, how you would get them uh, particularly out of, the, out of their particular problem. 
a plan to get your own currency and get out. I mean, that, that's pretty straightforward. It turns out that they didn't have it. Yeah. So if you then default in your new currency, you get rid of your debts, but at the same time, you're going to need a huge amount of your currency in order to import your basic necessities. And if you do that, you're going to end up with a huge amount of import inflation. So any savings that people have got left, or they're not held in euros, will be automatically eaten away. And you're very much looking at the situation in 1923 in Germany. So, you know, that's a horrible future. Now, let's say you can ride through that. In a few years from then, will you be able to get out? Possibly. Will you grow at 7% a year once your costs are equalized and you look more like Turkey rather than, rather than like Germany? Yeah, absolutely. But you're also 10% less export dependent than the rest of the EU. You're geographically isolated. You trade Greek businesses trade with other Greek businesses. There was no good hand here. So basically, it's a long, slow bleed to death with debt forgiveness on the horizon through infinite restructuring and handing over the loot permanently. So what would you have done if you were Barapoukas or uh, Serpus? I would have had a plan to get a second currency. I would have tried to run parallel currencies. I would have tried to get out because I don't think in the long run this is sustainable. But it's sustainable in a very simple sense. They can't grow fast enough given the constraints to raise investment high enough to impact GDP so that the debt will go down. So the only way this works out is if everybody in Europe's really on a nod and a wink and basically doing perpetual bonds. And then after eight years, we'll kind of have a conference and agree to wipe out 30 or 40% of them. It's a bit like the Irish promissory notes. The Irish are on the hook for 47 billion in promissory notes. They'll never be paid back. It's just extend and pretend. If you can't actually default and rationally get out your debts, you do extend and pretend and you just keep going. And that's basically what Europe's plan is. You were running Europe, what would you do? I wouldn't run Europe. It's a really bad idea for one person to run anything more than a bike. Okay. <laughs> but if, but if I was, no, it's very simple. Like I, I don't have any big plans. I don't, I don't think like you need to do an enormous sort of like, let's invest in this or whatever. What the hell do I know? But basically, it's like, just stop squeezing. It's really simple. Just stop trying to artificially constrict your budgets. Europe's growth rates are down at 1% in the good times because all they do is basically save. Everybody's trying to save all at once, whether it's for the Maastricht criteria or the new 2012 treaty and the fiscal compact and the budget balance. And like we know from American history, every time governments have tried to balance the budget over the multiple years, you have lower growth and you have higher unemployment. All right, so let's assume you turn Europe into kind of a quasi-America, you get off the austerity, and now you have America, Europe, and China as players in the world uh, under their current systems. Where do you see that uh, playing out to? Look, think about this. Let's do a counterfactual on this. Let's go back to the 1940s. So you've won the war. America's 60% of global economy, 50% of finance. Everybody's dollar-starved. You got the Soviet Union as a credible model on the other side. Like, go back to that period, right? And you said to somebody, all right, so you're in, you've got, you've basically got the Soviets, you've got the Americans, you've got old Europe, and you're going to have some decolonization. How do you see the world working out? I would argue the Americans kind of saw, saw how it would work out. They said back in uh, probably around 42 or 43, they felt that they would uh, win the war. After Stalingrad, I think it was a consensus that that the Allies would win, and the, and the Americans and the, and the British didn't want to recreate the situation that caused World War I and World War II autarkic growth by strong nations who then would have to expand. So that the Americans, in effect, presided over a world where they, in effect, let the Germans come back. They let the, the Chinese, hopefully it was the Chinese, but then the Japanese came back. 
So you had a capitalism that relieved the pressures, and you had three, a tripartite center, and the United States agreed, in effect, to absorb imports to keep the game going and keep... Right? So, you know, let's do the same thing now. We've evolved this world. Now, you could say the Americans designed it to happen by happenstance, but here's how it works. It's very simple. We have factories of consumption called shopping malls. The Chinese have factory production called factories. The Europeans do the high-end, the tourism, and the UNESCO heritage sites. Everybody else is kind of surplus to requirements unless you're a raw materials producer. That whole thing gets intermediated in a very simple trade, whereby the Chinese sell us stuff and we give them bits of paper bearing 2%. They then hold on to more and more of that until they get so annoyed with the process that they're going to try and build a piece of infrastructure all the way from Beijing to the Middle East and back to Indonesia in their new plan called uh, One Road, One Belt. The only problem with that is everybody that they're building this stuff for is really beginning to get more wigged out about the Chinese than they ever did about the Americans. To the point that the Vietnamese are considering asking the US Navy to come and visit Kamran Bay. Whoever thought that would happen? At the end of the day, there's one global reserve asset. It's the dollar. Why? Because simply because everybody believes it's going to last, the euro might not, and who knows what China's actually worth. Now, is this unsustainable? Yes, it is. Let's march it out to the point of double the population. Yeah, the Earth's screwed, right? Fine. But before we get there, this is the only system we've got. Now, how would you re-engineer that? Well, you've left me uh, speechless on that one uh, because I agree with uh, the way you set the table. And uh, I don't know how I would answer that. I guess I would, but that would be for another another, another time. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting... No, we agree on, uh, on, on, on the basics here, and uh, I think it's indeterminate, the, the future. But I myself, or I wouldn't do what I do, and I would say you, you don't do what you do if you felt things were really that hopeless. I mean, you yourself have studied the history of this and can trace the ideas that have caused much of this issue. Right. The, the, we muddle through. The entire species is bungling. We're like lemmings that just haven't been lucky enough not to find the edge of the cliff. Right? I mean, that, that's basically how we work as a species, right? Occasionally picking up cool bits of technology along the way, right? Well then, Mark, other than having a nice job and have studied hard all your life, what do you plan to do with this uh, information that you have? You, you kind of cracked the code as to how we got here, personally. Personally? I'm taking my daughter swimming at 3 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, there's only so much you can do. I mean, like, you know, I've spent the past three weeks writing about Greece, talking about Greece, doing interviews, I've been on CNN, I've been on this, that, and the next thing, right? And, you know, I, 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 to the point that basically I'm getting hate mail from senior European politicals, right? And it's like, I've done, I, there's only so much you can do. And at the end of the day, I mean, I feel heart sorry for the Greeks and everything that they're going through. But they gave up their printing press in a moment of vanity. Mark, take your daughter swimming. I will. I will. I definitely will. And uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, we'll continue this again, and I'll have a, a worked-out program for you that, uh, for you that, uh, that uh, would be kind of quasi-Georgist at, at, at that, but uh, it would deal with taxation of, uh, of nature resources and... Uh, all of which I'm down on. I mean, the whole land tax stuff that you guys are on, I, I, I totally agree. I completely and utterly agree. Yeah, so taxing nature, the occupation of nature, monopoly position nature. Yeah, I'm totally with you, right? But any the world that we actually live in, what do we do with that information? 
when you can't even get people to understand the fact that there's only 11% of Americans left in unions. They can't, by definition, be causing a problem. There aren't enough of them. And yet, the number one guy who's going to challenge Jeb Bush once um, D Donald blows up is a guy whose centerpiece campaign is to fight this mythical beast called the unions. And he'll fight it very successfully. That's why I spend a lot of time writing about ideas. That's what really matters. It's very simple to say this is all going to end badly. But unless you can say how and when and who's going to catch most of the crap, it's very hard to mobilize around that. And that's, that's the point I really want people to think about. Simply, the one the frustration I have with the left in general, and I can't myself somebody on the left, is to say, look, you guys have been predicting the doom and disaster of everything since I've been like a baby. And I'm now in my mid-40s. I'm a strong believer on taxes on nature, land, and taxing bads, pollution, and so forth. A, rigor, a rigorous tax on that monopoly would create uh, new path dependencies that would have good effects. And so I agree on attacking on a very narrow front in the tax area to create these new uh, paths that are possibly uh, ways out of this morass that you talk about. I totally agree, but here's the what would worry me about that. What would happen if you still got a third of the population thinking the Republicans are telling the truth? Because at that point, once you get those new taxes raised, they will use it to abolish income tax. Well, we could, uh, we would do, I would argue that, uh, well, that's another, that's another argument. That's another argument. But sure, we, I, would, I would tax inelastic factors of production, and I probably wouldn't tax income and uh, non-monopoly profits as a first, as a first step. Uh, of course, we would have to have an embedded uh, regime and, and government that protected uh, those gains from special interest groups. So we would have to have not a non-neoliberal approach to this. We'd have to have an embedded approach to that taxation. And with that, I would argue that spontaneous goodness may come out of that, but it may be a dream. It happens all the time. It just happens to be in competition with spontaneous badness. <laughs> okay. With that, another time, Mark. Thanks. Absolutely. All the best. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.